Welcome back to the 111th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the fitfluencer phenomenon and where you should be looking or how you should be thinking about your fitness goals and journey. A interesting one talking about fentanyl in Washington State and how it may become completely legal here soon, and a article talking about Tucker Carlson's return coming back, and he's making a show on Twitter. And, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, on the topic of fitness, has social media helped or hindered your physical fitness goals. You know, some people, they are perfect the way they are. They don't want to change anything. Others, they want to get down to an ideal weight. Maybe they want to look a specific way. So when you go on social media, has it helped you or has it hurt you? Did you find some inspiration or were you looking at somebody and saying, oh, wow, I don't think I can ever reach that level. So basically, there are these unattainable standards. And did they make you feel worse because you couldn't actually reach them? If you have any comments on this, if you've experienced anything like this, throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what people have to say about this one. As someone who has gone through their own fitness journey, I very much want to see how everybody else, even especially if you're in my generation, how they approach this issue. All right, so let's jump to our first article from the New York Times. How to choose the fitfluencer to follow and the ones to avoid. And we're kind of using this article more as a platform to start a more interesting discussion. But I did see it and I read it and I was like, okay, they have some good points here that I agree with about social media use and some ones that I disagree with about how to use social media in order to go on your own fitness journey. Now, to be frank, I didn't really use YouTube, Instagram, Facebook that much for my fitness journey. I kind of relegated myself to just doing my own thing and I didn't really look at social media that much at least until a little bit later that's when I started looking up a little bit more diet plans or different plans from people that I had seen occasionally pop up in my feed but I had never really clicked through and even then I didn't take their word as gospel which is one of the things that this New York Times article wants to talk about but we'll get to that let's read the First paragraph we have lined up here that talks about what is going on in the fitfluencer sphere and how they are making their presence known on social media. Quote, according to some estimates, Instagram is home to around 50,000 fitness influencers, most claiming to have the secret to health a healthy lifestyle. While some share science-backed helpful tips, others promote fitness advice that is misguided at best and dangerous at worst. In a new study, researchers found that nearly two-thirds of the 100 most popular fitfluencers, a term that can describe an influencer who posts content related to fitness, lacked sound advice or posted messages that could negatively affect people's mental and physical health by, say, promoting exercises as a tool to become skinnier. Several previous studies have shown that exposure to images that encourage a specific physique is correlated with a dip in body satisfaction and mood and self-perceived sexual attraction. It has also been linked to eating disorders. 
end quote. So what are we talking about here? What is this really breaking down? This is trying to show that overall, out of the top 100 influencers, two-thirds of them are giving information or going about giving that information in a way that isn't necessarily going to help people, whether that be physically, whether it be mentally. They're going to look at what this influencer is saying, and they're going to probably obsessively do it. They're going to take it as gospel, and it may end up hurting them. So this is an interesting response. And what we have to remember here is a lot of people who genuinely want to lose weight, not just want to look a little bit better, but genuinely want to lose weight and are not satisfied with the way that they see themselves in the mirror or that when they start running, they start to breathe really heavy and they can't make it more than a half mile without stopping or feeling a pain somewhere. That segment of the population, when they really want to lose weight, they're desperate. They feel that they need to find the quick fix or they know that it's going to be a long process, but they want to look to people who have done it before, who have some semblance of advice and can kind of give them the secrets to weight loss. And they really strongly hyper-focus when they get certain pieces of advice or if they see a certain physique that this is what the New York Times article is talking about. If they see a certain physique, they hyper-focus on getting to that point. And in doing so, making it an obsession sometimes, it can be very, very unhealthy. And, you know, I don't necessarily think there's a great deal to talk about besides that for this quote, because it's really just highlighting what is going on and what the trends are like. But the New York Times does go on to really point you in the right direction or say, hey, this is the way that you should go about looking for fit influencers on Instagram or any of these other social media platforms. And they have a list, and I've broken down the list even further into points I agree with and points that I disagree with. And they may have come from the same section in the article, actually, but you, there are certain lines where I'm like, okay, no, I, I see where you're coming from on this one, but I don't necessarily agree, and vice versa. So let's get to the points that I agree with. Quote, browsing the account leads you to feel guilty or body shame, she said. That should be an automatic unfollow. As research has shown, these feelings can fuel unhealthy fitness habits and undermine both physical and psychological benefits of exercise. So yeah, this is a really key one. If you look at an account when you're trying to find a person that is going to help you on your fitness journey, or at least that you want to lean on for advice or go to to see what their habits are and what they're doing, if it makes you feel ashamed of yourself, then you should not follow that account. And let's be clear, a certain amount of shame is okay, because if you are ashamed of your body, it may propel you forward, and it may actually make you work a little bit harder. But if it comes to the point where you're constantly beating yourself up, and you're looking at their content for advice, and even afterwards you're saying, oh, well, I could never reach that. Anyway, my body is so terrible. There needs to be a balance. You need to say, okay, look at where they are. Not jealous, not envious, not sad with yourself, but say, look at where they are. Look at their advice and say, hey, okay, I can get there too. And the reason that I'm motivated to get there is I'm not necessarily happy with my body. I am beautiful. I am a beautiful person. I deserve respect, but I'm not happy with my body and I'm willing to put in the effort to get there. So there's obviously a hybrid mix there. But if it if you go to this content and it outright says that or if it makes you feel 
like you are disgusting and you can't look at yourself and you feel worse after watching it, then that's only going to demotivate you because normally that's going to lead you to say, oh, well, no, I can't reach that. I can't attain that body type. And that's the wrong mentality to have. A little bit of shame is okay, but a whole bunch of shame is going to actually do the opposite of what you want it to do when you're looking at these different accounts. So the next point I agree with, quote, make a point to follow accounts that focus on finding joy and confidence in movement itself. Fitness looks different for everybody, despite long-held cultural misconceptions about exercise and body shape and size. Seeing a wide range of body types engaging in fitness activities is a key step to moving away from the stereotypes that fitness is just for the young, thin, competitive, completely able-bodied people. So, end quote. So I also, 100%, I'm on board, or maybe not 100%, you know, there are obviously caveats, but you want to focus on content, or let's be honest here, if you don't want to worry about content at all, you need to focus on things that are enjoyable and make you feel that when you look at them on social media, that they're actually lifting you up. And this does, of course, include content that's not saying, oh, this... I did this exercise and I burned 400 calories and this one that burned 200 calories and it becomes all about the calories. And I I have made this mistake myself. I will not lie. I had a very strict obsession at the very beginning of my weight loss journey about, okay, this is burning this many calories. This is burning this many calories. And to be honest, I still look at how many calories I burn now. But a lot of the activities I do I actually keep doing them because of the benefits that I enjoy from them afterwards, not just the calories. And when it comes to running, I could choose not to run like I do, but I could choose to go on the bike. I could choose to go on the rower, the elliptical, the stair, the stair stepper. But there's something very enjoyable about running, about moving through the world at your own pace. You're in your own world, essentially listening to, in my case, I listen to podcasts and you come back from the run and you may be exhausted and you may have hated getting up a little bit earlier to do it, but then you keep going on throughout the day and you feel like you have a certain amount of energy. You feel like you can tackle almost anything. And the great example, I was graduating from college not that long ago. It was about a week and a half, or by the time this goes up, it will almost be two weeks. I was graduating from college. That Saturday morning, I went on a long run. And when I was standing in front of the stage, one of my work, my bosses from work who was helping us in the graduation process said, do you feel nervous? And I said, no, no, I, I took a long run this morning. This is the easiest thing I'm going to do today in comparison to that. And there's a certain amount of confidence you gain doing hard things that force you to really push your body. And then you realize, okay, everything else in comparison it's small potatoes, man. If I can make it, do that really long run and I can work my butt off and push myself further to keep on going, then I can do that in other scenarios. So there's something about that that the author is really pointing out here, that it doesn't have to just be about losing the calories. It doesn't just have to be about working out for working out's sake. It can be positive beyond that. It can be a beautiful experience that allows you to understand your limitations and push yourself and also become a little bit healthier in the process. All right, so where I really, really disagree is with these next two points. Quote, instead of 
Instead, look for references to their credentials and experience, whether it's a master's degree or a coaching certificate. Be wary of fitfluencers who offer advice outside their expertise, Dr. Bryant said, particularly, particularly regarding diet and nutrition. So there, you know, this does sound pretty darn good. Hey, if they are credentialed, then they probably know what they're talking about, which is not false. But to pretend that just because they don't have those credentials or to state that just because they don't have those credentials doesn't mean or means that you shouldn't follow them, that you shouldn't give them your time of day, I think that's a little bit naive. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the people that I watched in the beginning did not have great credentials. They were not a certified nutritionist, but a lot of their tips helped me. And then again, when I was watching them, it wasn't because I wanted just one person to tell me what to do. I was trying to get a wealth of information. So maybe that's what you should do. Don't just go to one person and look at their credentials and say, oh, they're an expert in this field. They know everything. No, nobody knows your body. I was going to say better than you. Maybe your doctor knows a little bit better than you or people that might do your blood work. But at the point of starting, nobody really knows yourself better than you when it comes to your eating habits, your previous eating habits, what you can stand food-wise. So go to people, see a whole bunch of different people, even if, even if they are not necessarily credentialed and they might be giving a little bit of bad advice. They might say one good thing here, but another thing they say might not be the best. You have to take all that in stride. You can experiment and you can find out for yourself. You don't want to just rely on authority because sometimes authority is wrong. Remember a long time ago in the 80s, I say a long time ago for some of my viewers, that's not that long. But for me, before I was born in the 80s, there was a incessant, incessant hatred of trans fat and saturated fat. And as it turned out, as we found out over 40 years, it was actually sugar that was causing a lot of heart issues. So the experts don't always have this right either. And just because they have that doctor next to their name or they have that certified nutritionist, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are always up to date. They may have more insightful information. And of course they have trained in these areas, but that doesn't mean that because they're an expert, they are perfect for you and they're going to help you the most. That's an appeal. That is a fallacy. That's an appeal to authority. And remember, You have to do this on your own. Besides, you shouldn't be going to somebody and just copying exactly what they say. You should look at what they say and say, okay, well, I do like that part of it. I'm a little bit more picky. I don't like my avocados like that. Maybe I can adapt that in a different way. You have to make it your own because then you also feel more proud of it. When you're making a diet plan, when you're making an exercise plan, if you just copy somebody else's routine, maybe it will make you feel good. But there is a certain pride that comes along with, okay, no, this is how I do my routine. This is how I've set it up. I feel good doing it this way. And it kind of empowers you to keep going because you're like, this isn't just uh, Kim Kardashian's workout routine. This is my workout routine. This is how I address these certain things. So I think that the appeal to authority argument here falls a little flat for me. Because I'll be honest, I give advice to my friends. And am am I an expert? No. But I give advice to my friends. That's very general. And just because I'm not an expert doesn't mean what I say can't help them in some way, shape, or form. All right. And then there's also this last part, which is be wary of of fitfluencers who share perfect before and after photos that highlight fat loss or images like glistening abs or disembodied legs that treat body parts like objects to be perfected. End quote. And 
I get what they're coming at coming at here. They're trying to say, well, don't have those people that have unattainable physiques that are basically just posting different photos of their legs and everything like this because it will make you feel worse about yours. That's where they're really coming from. But I, I don't necessarily agree with the way they frame it because the body isn't necessarily only there to be perfected. And honestly, the body can't be perfected. There is no perfect body. And end all. There are always going to be flaws. There are always going to be ways that you can improve it more. But you should treat your body kind of like a machine. And I know that may sound a little cold, but something that can be refined, that can become more efficient. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to always be worried about the size of your muscles. Oh, are my abs equal? Do my pecs look a certain way? But you should understand that they do have to be refined. If you're trying to go on a fitness journey, you can refine them, and it's not unhealthy to do so. Now, if you obsess over it, sure. But if you want to grow some pec strength and you want to have some bigger pecs, then go for it. Don't be disencouraged by those people that are posting those ideal photos. I think it's a better way for them to frame it here rather than saying, oh, these body parts are not something that need to be perfected. Well, I agree. They can't be perfected. But that doesn't mean it should stop you from trying to get them as close as you can if that's your goal. And I don't necessarily think that's unhealthy. I think that's actually a good thing. Because if you try to get as close as possible to perfection and you take a lot of pride in that, that will actually keep you going on your fitness journey rather than saying, oh, well, no, I don't need to reach that ideal. You see a disembodied photo or you see a six-pack abs online and then you say, oh, well, this article says that I don't need to live up to that ideal. I don't need to try to get that. I should be completely content or I should just work out and whatever happened happens. Yeah, that's that's great. But if you have that photo of what you want to get to, it can be an encouraging factor. Now, obviously, I take a different approach than this author. This author may not necessarily have the idea that they want to strive for a very specific thing. They just want to be healthier overall. But for me, when I look at some of those photos, like, okay, the one that I always remember from high school is when Cristiano Ronaldo had his six-pack. I was like, dang, Cristiano, I want that. Or I believe it. I don't know. It may have been an eight-pack. I don't care. The point was, hey, I want that. And for some people, that was discouraging. And for me, for a little bit, it was discouraging. I would look and say, oh, I don't, I don't have that. I have a big belly. That's not, that's not okay. I don't feel good. But then as I got older and I started my finish journey, he was like, I want that. I am aiming for that. I will strive for that. Now, do I have a great six-pack? No. You know, I'm still working on it just like everybody else. But having that as an end goal, having that image that I saw, it makes it so that I'm striving and reaching. And it's less discouraging now because I've really dove headfirst into my fitness journey. So maybe the advice should be, when you first start your fitness journey, just worry about doing you becoming fitter and not obsessing. But then as you're later into your journey and you are healthier and now you need a new goal to strive for, yeah, okay, we're going to aim for that six-pack because it's not going to be as detrimental to affect a little bit of change in your program because you've already been putting in the work and when you were doing all this other fitness journey stuff. All right. I got really, really, really off track there. I am extremely sorry, but this is a topic that I'm very, very passionate about. I used to be a big boy. Let's just put it that way, a very big boy. And now I, I have come back down 
and I have really enjoyed my fitness process and it makes me feel very empowered when I'm able to do some of the things that I do. I'll tell you now, I a few years ago, if you had told me, if I had gone back to myself and said, hey, in like a year and a half, first off, I probably wouldn't recognize myself. But second off, I would tell myself, hey, you, you'll probably be re- running three miles nonstop straight through hills and everything in less than a year. If you had gone back to before this last summer and told me that, I would have been like, I don't know. That seems that seems a little hard. I don't think I could ever really get into running. So everybody has their own pace. And I think that this is a very important conversation. And like I said, it's near and dear to my heart because it has been a big part of the last year and even before that last two years of my personal growth. All right. So let's jump to our second article. It's also about health, but on a different level. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's Washington State Fentanyl Haven. That's the headline. So you may be reading this, and you may be thinking, well, okay, Seattle, Washington, those are pretty Democrat-controlled areas, pretty liberal areas. We know Oregon, de, uh, how would you say it? They decriminalized a lot of different drugs in their area. So you may be thinking, well, this, this doesn't sound too far off. Let's see what Washington's doing here. But it's not necessarily that they're legalizing something. It's actually that they're kind of hitting a crisis moment. So I'll read this first quote. Quote, want to live in a state where heroin and meth are legal? Your Mecca may arrive on July 1st when Washington state will legalize all drugs if Democrats can't find a policy compromise. In 2021's State versus Blake, the Washington Supreme Court ruled that the state's felony drug possession law was unconstitutional. Shannon Blank... Blake, who was arrested for possession of methamphetamine, said the law was unfair because she didn't know there were drugs in the pocket of the jeans that she had borrowed. The law might have been adjusted to specify that a felony charge requires knowing possession, but this is West Coast politics. Lawmakers instead passed a temporary fix, making possession of hard drugs a misdemeanor until they had a time to sort out a permanent solution. The law expires on July 1st, but the state legislator ends its April session without a new plan, end quote. So if you notice what the author's doing here, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's not actually saying they will outright be decriminalized. It will just say, well, if this law goes on as it is, then it will just be a misdemeanor and it won't be a felony because they haven't addressed this yet and they haven't tried to fix it. And, you know, there's an interesting conversation that always comes up with fentanyl. One of my best videos was, or podcasts, was talking about the impact of fentanyl in my perspective on it. And I think maybe it's developed since then, or maybe I've actually sat down and thought about it a little bit more. But I think there are two paths forward when it comes to drugs. Either one. We crack down extremely hard. We Okay, there's actually a little bit of preface there. We acknowledge or we say that fentanyl is a harm to society and we crack down extremely hard and we try to make it disappear from the United States. That is extremely hard to do. It is not practical, but I think that is solution number one. Or solution number two, we legalize it. We say everybody can do with their body as they please and we make it so that drug companies will make safe safe fentanyl rather than the dangerously cut stuff. And 
I'm kind of in favor of number two. If you want to destroy your body, and I know that probably sounds very harsh, very mean. If you want to destroy your body, if you want to make decisions that are not in your best interest, you should be allowed to do that. And of course, I understand that addiction plays into this as well. But there's a certain point where you still have to make the choice to take that fentanyl. And if it's legal, then that choice really does fall on you even more. It's saying, okay, this is a legal substance. You can choose to do fentanyl if you want. And of course, when it's illegal, you can do the exact same thing. But it really does lift the burden and say, okay, no, you can't necessarily blame your circumstances as much. You can't say that you're forced to do it, so on and so forth. You can't say that you're deep in the drug trade and that you just got into this bad place. If you do it when it's legal, it is solely on you responsibility-wise. And I think that really raises the bar. And, of course, if it's legal, then we can also put some of that enforcement money, the money that is spent on making sure that these drugs are cracked down on, we can put some of that money to rehabilitation centers. I mean, look at Portugal. I know a lot of left people point to Portugal and say, look, they decriminalize all drugs. They put a whole bunch of money into the rehabilitation programs, and people are doing a lot better now. I don't know all the details, but it sounds like a very interesting approach to the situation. And I think that it's a serious conversation that we need to have moving forward because I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to take all the controls off and say, okay, everybody do what you want. I think there are certain circumstances where the government has to come in and has to be the big brother in order to help society flourish. But I don't necessarily know where that line is. And right now, I'm very much more libertarian. I do acknowledge that, of course, the government does need to step in at some points. But I don't know where that line is. I'm very libertarian on these issues. And until that is the case, until we can identify where the government needs to step in to make sure our culture and society propagate moving forward and that we survive as a nation, until we can have that honest discussion on the same ground, then government back off, okay? Take your hands out of the cookie jar, let everybody do as they please, and then we can build up from there. As you let people do what they please, we see where the holes in the system are, and then the government can come in and say, okay, this is we've seen this be an issue, we've seen societal decay here, and now we're going to step in and try to fix it. I think that's a very interesting approach. And maybe going forward, we'll see how that works out if different states decide, okay, hey, we are going to legalize all drugs. And then over time, they realize, okay, this is causing an issue, so we need to step in here. And of course, it will slowly lead to the government getting back involved, but it will be a more measured response than an emotional response that was given during the 70s and 80s that was just overwhelmingly negative, cracking down on different segments of the population. So I think it's an interesting approach, and I think we should have an actual conversation about it. All right, let's jump to our last article. I wanted to go into that one a little bit more, but I don't necessarily think we have the time. And basically, it's an argument between Republicans and Democrats, like I I literally just laid out. The progressives want less control. The Republicans want more control over substances and the laws surrounding them. So that's basically the argument that's going on. The author was just a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than I could have been. But let's jump to our last article. This one comes from National Review, Tucker Carlson's show to relaunch on Twitter. So, of course, as anyone who's probably been paying attention knows, that Tucker Carlson was fired or let go from 
Fox News, and he was really killing it. He had the 8 p.m. time slot. He was bringing in a lot of different viewers, and they let him go. And now he's trying to worm his way out of his non-compete clause, and he says that he's going to be posting his show on Twitter. I've seen a little bit of different commentary. Some people say, well, he's going to Twitter because probably in his contract it says he can post whatever he wants on Twitter and he can't go to a competitor. So he couldn't go to One America News or he couldn't necessarily host his own podcast or start his own network or something to that effect. And we'll see how this one pans out. Musk clearly came out and said, hey, no, 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 no. We're not signing a deal with him. Understand this is him putting his content up on Twitter just like any other creator would. And Carlson, he had some really strong words to say. And I'm just going to read a little bit of his statement that he posted, I believe it was two days ago at this point on Twitter. Quote, weeks after his abrupt separation from Fox News, Tucker Carlson announced Tuesday that his show will now air on Twitter. Quote, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world is Twitter, explained Carlson in a video message. Quote, video, Twitter has long served as a place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we can think that's a good, and we think that's a good thing. Starting soon, we'll bring a new version of our show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. Carlson added, end quote. And this is a interesting progression. The, the thing about Tucker Carlson is, and it's been pointed out by many other people, and it was one of the first things that I thought, is that he has the APM slot, and a lot of Fox News viewers are older. You're probably talking about 50 and up people who have seen our country go downhill or see it differ from the one they grew up in, and they're very conservative because of that. Even if they are more liberal-leaning in that they want more free information out there. They have a less restrictionary trade policy. The traditional liberal sense, even not, you know, by our standards, traditional, like the 1940s definition of a liberal, they are very conservative. They're not for this New Age stuff. They're not for a Green New Deal. They're not necessarily in favor of all the social issues that is being fought in the culture war right now. And Twitter has a lot younger of a population overall. And we'll see how that translates. That's going to be the most interesting part of the conversation or a part of this ongoing thing that Carlson's trying to do, which is to see how many older people come to watch a show on Twitter and how many young people also gravitate towards Carlson. Because like I said, his demographic at Fox was a little bit older. So he probably won't get as many views at first, but we'll see if he can you know, catch a, a string or catch a vibe in the younger crowd and get some views from them. All right, that's all I have for you today on these ones. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. And I feel like it's been a little bit since we've had one from the Animal Rescue site. They really got me through the first few months of the podcast. They were providing the daily delight, and they, they were little cuties. So this one is a daily indoor life of an otter whenever dad is away. So to, to start off, if you had told me when I was a child that there were other acceptable pets and, you know, I would have known that otters were one of them, I would have been begging my parents nonstop. Quote, 
Kotaro and Hana's pa- human parents share their daily indoor life on their YouTube channel. The otter siblings are so adorable, and it's fascinating to see them act like toddlers. End quote. You know, and trust me, they are, you know, some of the v- most active toddlers that I've seen. And trust me, toddlers can't be active. Quote, you can totally tell that their routine, that they are content and comfortable living there. Kotaro and Hana freely roam at the house as if they own it, and they'll be eating in the kitchen and lounging in the living room, end quote. And there was even a part where they were playing in the pool together, which was absolutely adorable. All right, with all that said, if you want to see any of the cute videos from this last article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the link to the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. And normally this is where I would start concluding, but I did have a question. If you have made it this far, that means that you are a person or a viewer who cares about the channel. And Twitter has recently allowed people to put long-form video on their website, but you have to be a Twitter blue subscriber, which means I would have to pay $8 a month in order to put it up on Twitter. But if you have made it this far and you have an opinion as to whether you would watch the show on Twitter, let me know because I feel like it's a growing platform. They're just now starting to implement long form video and maybe we could reach a wider audience on that platform as well, or maybe it would be more convenient for you. So let me know what you think. Throw it down in the comment section. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.